Hey everyone, it's Adam Farkas. Welcome to another ODWire radio show. And with me as always, I have Paul Farkas. Hi everyone. And today, before we get started, let me just say thank you because Paul, yet again, we have gotten a sponsor for the show. Wow. Can you believe it? Yeah. Who's sponsoring? (laughs) (laughs) So today actually sponsoring, we have Alcon and um, you're going to actually see why Alcon sponsored this one. So um, for better or worse, Paul, maybe for you worse, today's topic is all about science. Science. Oh, but but the good part is it's about bodily fluids. There you go. So, so Paul, you know, realizing that you haven't stepped into a classroom since the Nixon administration, and of course in medical school you learn about almost nothing about about tear film. Um, so you're you know, just as ignorant you, as me. You, you take an ophthalmology rotation. They mention it for five seconds and then hustle you out the door. So I'm just as ignorant as you. But today, fortunately, we have someone who is not ignorant about this topic. Um, Today we have Dr. Christopher May, uh, who's a graduate of the Southern College of Optometry, um, and he completed a, a residency in ocular disease and a fellowship in the academy. Um, he was the center director for West Tennessee Eye Care and the team eye care provider for both the Memphis Grizzlies and Paul, because you don't know, that's basketball. Oh, it's that right? <laughs> I thought and, it was a beer hunt, a bear hunting group. <laughs> so that's basketball. Uh, and the uh, St. Louis Cardinals AAA affiliate, the Memphis Redbirds. Um, And Chris is now in uh, private group practice uh, with two locations in North Mississippi. Um, So he lectures nationally, so I'm sure many of the folks listening today uh, know Chris pretty well. And he's an adjunct uh, faculty member at Southern. So with all that said, Chris, welcome to ODYR Radio. Well, thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm glad you guys are uh, taking this to be such a... uh very serious scientific presentation. Oh, oh absolutely. I mean, I, look, I, I, I love tears. I mean, the tears are so great. I mean, kids, babies make uh, adults pay attention to tears. Uh, politicians cry. And, and I make Paul cry all the time. So yes, this is an important topic for him. a lot of tears here. So uh, I want to learn much more about tears than I ever knew before. <laughs> so... Uh, with that said, Ed, you want to start with sure. the first question? So, you, you know, we're going to be speaking, and again, Alcon sponsoring the show today, so we're going to be speaking about uh, the tear film layer in the context of contact lenses as well. So why don't we just kick things right off, um, and we'll go from the beginning. So in a normal healthy eye, what exactly does the tear film do for the ocular surface? So, so Chris, why don't you get us started right from the beginning? Well, there's a, a lot more to tears uh, than, than meets the eye, if you, if you like bad puns. Um, it, it's more than just wetting the surface. Uh, I think patients especially kind of equate crying with tears. And you say, oh, your eyes dry. No, I, I cry all the time. And it's, well, that's, that's not what we're talking about. We can't just pinch you and suddenly make everything uh, work perfectly. It's a lot more to it. And a tear in particular, when you're talking about tear physiology, is just astonishingly complicated. I mean, so while there's wetting, uh, when we're just talking about the presence of moisture, there's, there's a very big difference between that and lubricating the eye. And lubricating now is probably the, the single key thing when it comes to what makes this surface work. I mean, it's got to be wet. It's got to be even. It's got to be lubricated or otherwise all sorts of trouble uh, starts to ensue. And, and that, that particularly is important when we're talking about throwing a contact lens in here and making it work along the uh, along well with everything else. But there's also protection in there. I mean, uh, we've got to have a an intact surface and it's got to be moisturized to make it work right. And when things go wrong there, we see that pretty quickly. I mean, it's evidenced by SPK or Delin and all the, the nasty, bad things that can happen. And there's some inherent protection in there that's not as easy to see. We have to do assays to figure that out, like lactoferrin and all the immunoglobulins and fibronectins and all these really neat, interesting things that uh, PhDs in corneal physiology just live to talk about at dinner parties. But it's the thing.
things that are happening that are underneath there are, are key to, to function. And we've got to keep that function working to get vision to work right. And there's metabolic factors that are there. Uh, it, it's got to be able to, to bring in oxygen and, and nutrients and remove wastes. And if that doesn't it doesn't work properly. We get stasis, particularly like where the contact lens is in place and things aren't moving right or if we're not getting tear turnover. And that's pro-inflammatory. Once we get inflammation, the immune system comes in and does what it's good at. It kills stuff. And that really, really makes a mess. So, so uh, Chris, uh, you know, you got to make me uh, remember what, what I learned at school years and years ago about the classic three-layer model of the tear film. So we have a baseline and, and see how that, that uh, classic model has changed through the years. So can you describe the basic three layers that, that we all learned initially? Yeah, the, uh, I like calling that the classic there. That's a, that's a very gentle way to put that. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but certainly, I mean, when I was in school, same thing. We learned the, the three-layer model of the tear film. And we've got this base of mucin. All right, we're talking to patients, you see, and we've got goo. And then you've got the aqueous layer, which is when... Again, talking to patients, this is tears when they're talking about tears. And a lipid layer up above it. And our understanding of the, the structure and the function of the tear film is just constantly evolving. Uh, and, and this last five or ten years has been really actually very, very exciting uh, where our understanding is increasing. And our, and our patients' understanding is increasing as well. And Now, that's a good and a bad thing because now their demands are starting to increase too. They know that there's drugs out there that can help them. There, there's over-the-counter products that can help them, that there's interactivity that can go there. And so they expect a lot more of us. But the tear film is really a giant self-organizing polyelectrolyte matrix, uh, which just rolls off the tongue. But it's if you think about what's happening, these layers are able to orient themselves exactly where they should be in a perfect thickness with perfect smoothness in a fraction of a second and then hold there for hundreds of times as long as it takes them to assemble. I mean, if you uh, just spray some water on the wall, it's just going to run down. Trying to hold this entire surface vertical and then have it last and hold together without breaking up is really a miracle that the human body can even pull it off. So it's, there's more to it than the classic layers, and, uh, but still when it comes to understanding function, the three layers really help us break it down and, and act in the way that we need to. Absolutely. So, you know, it sounds like this is actually a rather complex system. People think that it's, it's kind of simple, but really it's not. Um, can the environment actually affect tear stability? Oh, absolutely. And I think any of us can know, you know, springtime when, when allergy gets going and the eyes are a little waterier and, and, and things are a little more unstable, it certainly causes trouble. Or winter heat, you know, the, the heat's running constantly when it's really cold outside, pulls that humidity out of the air. So environmental effects are a pretty uh, pretty major factor when it comes to success. Humidity uh, is one of those things, if you've ever worn your contact lenses on an airplane or if you've worn them uh, out west climbing a mountain or anything, as that humidity drops, boy, does the eye change in the way that it behaves. And other factors like pollution are more and more of a factor as we're trying to understand what role does it play when you're around all of these particulates and all these other things. You know, definitely affects tear stability. Now, exactly how is a whole lot more difficult to understand and even more difficult to predict. Right. You know, you mentioned some environmental factors. Can you give us a rundown of the sort of the medications and the over-the-counter products that might actually affect stability as well? Well, from a medication standpoint, if we're talking RX medication, something that's prescribed by, by a physician, we have a there's a lot of different medicines that have effects. The big problem with those is that there's not much we can do about it. Most of those medicines are necessary for one reason or another, whether it's 
uh, SSRIs or, or you know antihistamines, things like that. So over the counter is where we have to history a little bit better, and we have to pay attention. Uh, when it comes to patient management, because it helps us know, hey, how am I really going to help this patient? I don't think any of us are going to discontinue an antidepressant for a patient just because they're dry. But when we're trying to figure out what, what's going on, you know, self-treatment, uh, springtime allergies are back again. You're going, you know, what are you taking for your allergies? Uh, over-the-counter antihistamines, particularly some of the older ones, are very, very drying to the surface. And unknowing use of those, the number of patients that are taking something like Tylenol PM or one of the PM formulations and don't realize that that has an antihistamine in it. And so they go, no, 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 I never take Benadryl. It dries me out too much, but I can't sleep without my Tylenol PM. <laughs> right. So going, Uh-oh, well, you know, you know what we're doing. And I, another huge kind of an over-the-counter effect, but something that's there is energy drink users. I know it's just a severe dryness in some of these, uh, oh, 20, 30-somethings that are, that are pretty heavy energy drink uh, users. Uh, there's a lot of caffeine in some of these and a bunch of other additives, depending on what they're, which one they're using and just how much of it they're, they're using a day. You know, water's there. They can drink water, and it will help tremendously. <laughs> and uh, I, I, only Americans would go out, and when we have dry skin, buy you know, some sort of uh, cream. When we have dry eye, buy drops. And uh, dry mouth will buy some sort of moisturizing lozenge rather than drinking water. Right. And, you know, it's actually funny. Since Paul's been in practice, of course, the entire nation has become addicted to Starbucks. So I would imagine that with just the increased caffeine use across the board that you're seeing a lot, a lot more uh, changes in the tear film. Sure. Absolutely has an effect. Now, so some uh, female questions here. Uh, is menopause a factor to consider in dry eyes? Uh, menopause is certainly a factor. Hormone regulation in general here is, is a major issue. And we know that, that as we see hormone shifts, dryness gets to be a lot uh, bigger factor just fundamentally. Of course, in contact lens wearers, that's even compounded further. And, you know, testosterone definitely plays a role. We've even seen some you know, theories and some, some pilots as future treatments come in there. And I think our understanding of the hormone cascade will get better. I think that's going to give us something where we can act in future treatments and have a lot more relief to be able to bring to patients, particularly our uh, postmenopausal and perimenopausal women. Right. And one thing that used to be a, a real bear for me in, in New York practice was eye makeup and eye makeup removers. And uh, is this a factor uh, in, in dry eyes as well? Well, any foreign substance, anything at all, is going to have an effect on tear stability and, and breakup time, whether it's even just an eye drop or a medicated eye drop is going to have it. Makeup uh, is, a, is a significant factor. The removers, uh, I'm with you there. That is one of the things that you really have to question asking the patient directly, you know, how are you removing your eye makeup? And some of them, oh, I just use water or, or whatever. And then, well, what do you mean, whatever? What does that really go? And I'm a big fan of oil-free makeup removers. Uh, it's one of those things I give and really try to counsel my patients to use an oil-free makeup remover, which is odd advice coming from a middle-aged bald guy. But <laughs> oh, welcome to the club. <laughs> not, not a charter member, but I'm happy to join. <laughs> they kind of look at you funny and go, well, what does this matter? But for the patients that are using oil-based or cold creams or, or even more harsh soaps, it can really, they're making their lives miserable. And also, one of the other things, too, for our younger patients, they do have to remove their eye makeup, not just cake layer after layer on top of each other. Right. And so a question for you, if, if someone's actually having problems and now they're using drops, are there any kind of drops that you, you would say that makes this problem actually worse rather than better? I think the biggest thing that happens there is the patient's concept that just a tear is a tear is a tear. If it's over the counter, it's good. 
and they arrive at the, the display. And if you look at these, I mean, go to the drugstore and look at everything stacked up. It's no wonder there's a hundred agents all sitting there. They don't know what to do. They get a little sticker shock about anything else when they see some of the higher ends. And they end up buying whatever has the, the cheapest price and walk out with it and assume it's going to be the same as, as the best thing that's there, so to speak. And uh, more often than not, uh, they walk out with uh, Visine or Murine or one of these get-the-red-out uh, agents, and those can create a lot of trouble. First of all, uh, it's amazing that we can't get a patient to use a glaucoma drug one time a day, but they'll go and get an over-the-counter uh, drop with a secondary effect and use it 16 times a day and dilate themselves with it. In the <laughs> <laughs> but I, I tell patients, and I, I equate uh, this with nasal spray. And when they understand what the active ingredient is in this, that they get the red out, that the decongestant that's at work there is not evil, but it works a lot more like nasal spray. And they tend to look at you kind of crazy, like you're making it up. And then the more you talk about it, you notice how you used to use it one time a day and your eyes stayed white all day. And then, then it was two and then it was three. And, you know, you're getting hooked on this. And not to mention you're solving the problem of having a white eye, not actually helping the symptoms that we're trying to fix. And if anything, because preservatives and then they get up to those higher doses, then there's a lot more trouble. And I think from a practitioner's standpoint, we also have to look at these systems and pay attention to them. There are just a litany of different over-the-counters out there. And they've got different formulations, whether they've got carboxymethyl cellulose or hydroxypropyl methyl cellulose and different thickening agents versus things that are at emulsions. And when we're telling patients what they need, it's not go get a tear or here's the one I have the most of in the drawer. Uh, here's This is the one that's best for you and let's make that decision consciously. And if they've got a lipid-based surface disease, then an emulsion, one of these can help the, the lipid layer is going to help them more versus someone that has a, a secretory or someone that is just needs help here and there with specific dryness, say someone that works in a nursing home and they're saying, hey, at work in the afternoons in the, in the winter, I'm really drying out, you know, that would be a very different product than someone that has, say, mybomitis. Right. Do you have a particular go-to that you like to use? Uh, I'll tell you one thing I've really kind of fallen in line with is uh, I like the, the sustained spectrum and being able to go, say, the Ultra is a very nice uh, system in the way that it works. It doesn't over-thicken when it hits the eye, so patients can drive pretty quickly with it. And I'll get them, you know, hey, don't use this at a four-way stop. But we can also move up a notch when they, if they need something like a liquid gel. They've got a thicker, heavier for the more severe dry eye. But also the, li the lipid is, the emulsions are fantastic. And as someone who has uh, mybomian issues and I have lipid layer issues, that is something that for me, being able to supplement li my lipid layer helps me tremendously in making it through the day. And looking at the patient and making that decision I've got within that, that product line, I can kind of move back and forth within it. Although, as more products kind of enter these lines, especially with the PM products and the overnight products, the patient, again, has to be educated. Hey, it's not a price decision. This is the one for you. A lot of times we'll give them the coupon, and we're going to mark on it which one we want them to use and, and literally write instructions as if it's an RX because we're, we're RXing over the counters to make sure that it's being used the way that we want it to be used. Right. And that's, that's how they're going to be successfully managed. Right. So let, let's cut to the chase now. We'll get, we'll get down to business. What happens when you place a contact lens on the eye? What happens to the tear film? Well, that is a mess. <laughs> I mean, inherently, <laughs> but uh, ODs and, and, and OMDs have it a little different in that we are actively prescribing a foreign body. 
We're, we're telling the patient, hey, stick this thing in your eye and let's see what happens. And it, so it's going to upset homeostasis. And I mean, on the very, very shallow level, we know that tear breakup time, for example, is about three times quicker than a contact lens wear. But what does that mean? I mean, there's a hunk of plastic floating around in the eye. Is that good, bad? Do they feel that? There's a lens there. What does it mean? And there's a lot of studies that have looked at their protein makeup, and we know we shift all sorts of protein makeups uh, within the tear film, and that changes a lot. But one of the biggest things that happens is that we affect that lipid layer, the one that I have trouble with, and that is one of the things that creates a, a lot of destabilization within the tear film. Because once that lipid layer is upset, then things start sliding off the cliff. Because without it, now evaporation is back up. And with a thin lipid layer, evaporation up, now we're left with a hyperosmolar surface and, and things start to get uncomfortable. And that's when the real, real trouble comes in there. And, you know, and we focus so long on things like high DK. We, we thought, hey, if we just get these patients oxygen, everything's going to be great. And what we found out was that DK wasn't the holy grail. We got them oxygen, and they told us that our lenses that shouldn't be able to dry out were dry. And uh, we said, uh-oh, well, now what do we need to do? And now we've realized that th that reduced lipid layer is probably key, and it seems to be independent of the lens type as well, which is an interesting fact. Hmm. So now is this also true for rigid gas permeable lenses as well as the hydrogel lens? Well, the the exact way that it's going to react is going to be different depending on whether it is, say, hydrogel, silicon hydrogel, or an RGP. But most of the effects do seem to be able to be uh, taken back to, to the reduced lipid layer. I mean, if you go back to 83, uh, Cedarstaff and Tomlinson did a, uh, a uh, paper that published all of the effects on that classic, huh, if you'll forgive me, three-layer tear film. But uh, in 06, Stapleton published, uh, it was pretty amazing looking at just all of the effects in the tear film, and it literally affects all the way through. But we keep coming back over and over again that that lipid layer seems to be, that's where it's at, and that's what we've got to make sure that we're, we're not messing up too much. Right, and I'm just, I'm just curious, though, for the other two layers, the aqueous and the mucin layers, what, what kind of an effect does the lens have on those? Well, aqueous layer, of course, say... Uh, a hydrogel, uh, whether it's silicon or in general, is going to interact a lot more with that aqueous layer. Now, the rigid, it's not going to be quite as in play with that because it's not both absorbing and releasing depending on, on exactly where it starts out. But homeostasis is achieved actually pretty quickly. And so the idea that the lens was drying it out as we went away or soaking up all the tear film and all that is not actually as dynamic as we once thought it was. In the past few years, we basically said that that those lenses, no matter which one they are, they're, they're really leveling out after relatively speaking, a, a few minutes, you know, hour, hour and a half, everything's pretty much where it's going to be. A mucin layer is a little bit more complex depending on what we have happening. That's where we see things like these mucin balls that happen. And, and we see a, a, a silicon hydrogel in particular that it's moving back and forth and it's literally scraping that mucin layer and rolling it up. And then we get these little deposits stuck on the inside of the lens. Well, since they're on the underside, they're being pushed onto the surface of the cornea, and so they can leave little divots on the cornea and deposits on the lens. So all three layers definitely interact. But it's, uh, there's some of that that we can affect and some of that we can't. And, and so I think trying to, to minimize that effect is key. But our understanding of what makes that patient happy means that what's happening really in front of the contact lens is where we can make the patient happy. The patient fundamentally doesn't say, hey, I think I've got uh, you know, a couple of 50 micron mucin balls underneath my contact lens. 
they are going to say that this lens that you told me isn't going to dry out feels like it's drying out. And that's that pre-contact lens tear film or the mini, if you will, if you will, tear film that's in front there. And if we can maintain that surface by designing our contact lenses properly and, and building systems around it, well, that's where patients really feel good. When they feel good, they can wear lenses the way they want to and that eye stays healthy. Right. And so the, the next question, of course, is uh, wettability. And, and how does wettability actually make the lens feel more comfortable? Well, imagine taking your uh, brand new car and draining all the oil out of it and then starting it and running it. Uh, and after, yeah, after a little while, you'll start to hear a, a sound that's a little bit amiss. And, and, so, and that is the, uh, well, that is, that's a lot of money going down the drain, but it is one of those one of those things where that is friction, and friction is evil. Uh, or same way could be said by wearing rough fabric on skin. You know, you got you all got that that one shirt with the, that you like, but the collar rubs you just crazy by the end of the day. And it doesn't necessarily have to be heavy friction. It just is the interaction that just starts to drive you insane. So why do these patients say, "Hey, my lens is drying out"? Well, that that's wettability. And so that anterior surface of the lens, as the the tear film is interacting with it. And these anterior surfaces are very dynamic, uh, particularly if you're talking about a standard hydrogel. I mean, you've got a water surface, essentially, that as it's sitting out on the outside of the eye, tear film breakup happens. Well, now it's exposed to air. Well, that doesn't want to be there anymore. So it's going to dive back in and that the lens starts to develop non-wetting zones, areas that won't wet with the tear film anymore. And now the tear film starts to drop dramatically, not just a little quicker, not three times quicker, but instant or very irregular. And we've all experienced this, trying to refract the patient. And they're sitting there and they're going, okay, uh, one or two, uh, two, no, wait, one, wait, no, now it's better. I like that. No, let's go back to there. I haven't even done anything yet. <laughs> And their tear film is so irregular that they can't get steady vision out of it. So that is absolutely the most frustrating thing of all. To a little bit lesser extent, once they have some stability, then they start saying, well, now I'm feeling that friction, that wettability. My eyelid is interacting with this lens. And this feels terrible. And they feel that is dryness. And that mini tear film uh, on that surface literally inverts. Because as we get those non-wetting zones, instead of being hydrophilic, they become lipophilic. So the, the oils then start attaching to that. And so we flipped our three-layer tear film to where the lipid's now at the bottom. And so that's not a pleasant feeling. So now we flipped everything around. We have these non-wetting zones. The tear film won't hang on above that. And the patient says, hey, this feels just like it does when my tear film breaks up. My eye is dry. And so even with this lens that we're telling them their eye's not dry, they're going to describe it as dryness. And once that comfort discussion comes in, uh, study and survey after survey and, and published report after report and marketing surveys tell us that patients equate dryness and comfort. Once that comfort's not there, they're going to drop out. You know, there's a flip side to this. You have the, the patients that are miserable, but then you have these other people that for some reason or other are 100% happy with any sort of contact lens you put on them. You know, they can wear them, they can sleep with them, not sleep with them, uh, hard lenses, soft lenses. Uh, they're just happy people. And if you ask them anecdotally, they'll tell you all sorts of stories. So how about uh, the any sort of anecdotes about diet? What, what happens uh, in, in variation in, in a person's diet? Uh, I know in ODY we spend a lot of time with uh, the, the 
the vegan zealots talking about how their life has changed because they're only eating vegetables now, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, so is there any anything that you can think of uh, in a diet that would help the tear layer? Well, as a southerner and uh, as someone who competes in barbecue contests, I think uh, smoked <laughs> pork would be the best. <laughs> That's definitely not the best thing for your lipid layer. It does help your body accumulate lipid generally around your midriff. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, yeah and barbecue contests are kind of the anti-vegan. Right. <laughs> They're a lot of fun, though. <laughs> for sure. You know, if, if we're really talking about diet, I think it comes back to right now huge discussions on the Mediterranean diet and, yeah, and where do we need to be? How is it that we have these Greek patients that run cholesterols that are in the thousands, but they don't have the vascular disease? We have obviously a lot within diet that we don't understand all the way. Omega threes, though, uh, really, I mean, trying to eat oily fish, trying to keep that diet and that balance there can help. Now, if you can't get enough in your diet just by eating and then, of course, supplementing is something that a lot of patients are going to have to. I'm in North Mississippi, so to my patients, when we talk about eating oily fish three times a week, they think that that means catfish dropped into hot oil and fried. <laughs> Not exactly the same health outcome when they're done. And it's, but it is, it's tough to get that, that omega-3 load. And, and so a lot of times you're telling patients, you know what, fine, let's see if we can eat it one to two times a week, but we're going to have to supplement regularly. And the supplements don't have all the negatives that they had. I mean, with microfiltration and some things, you know, we don't get the, the fish burps and all that. And having a good, healthy lipid layer to begin with and having a, a, an eye that is healthy and that surface is ready to receive a contact lens is, is fundamental to success. I mean, when we're looking at these patients, we, we've all had them where you're looking in and going, the patient's going, please put me in a contact lens. They're the opposite of the of your one that's happy no matter what. And we're going, oh my gosh, there's no way that this is going to work. And you know, sometimes it does. And then you go, well, wait, how did that work? And you start looking through, like you said, and finding out that they're they're supplementing well, they're doing better than you thought. The anti-inflammatory aspects there. You look up, and a month or two later, after working on them, they've really they do great. But uh, if they stop any particular piece of that, they also can set themselves back and. I tell you, what, you can find yourself really searching uh, for uh, a uh, way to solve their problems when they've changed something, whether they've swapped their diet or changed what they're doing or quit their supplements. They can set themselves back. Right. So let's move on now to sort of what the the contact lens manufacturers have been doing. And full disclosure, because we are always, you know, full disclosure is what OdiWire is all about, right? So full disclosure, I actually wear the daily AquaComfort Plus lens. So I'm about to ask you a question about this particular lens. Um, so generally speaking, what systems have manufacturers used to make daily wear hydrogel lenses more comfortable and wettable? Um, and using my the lens that I wear, the AquaComfort Plus, um, what technologies uh, do they actually use to enable the lens to improve the, the wetting and, and the comfort of the lens? Oh, I tell you, I, I love the material science side of this. To me, this is where things get the most intriguing. Um, but because some people are driving and uh, material science is not something that a lot of people are really interested in, we'll try to kind of keep it light looking through this. <laughs> as far as what has been tried, what hasn't been tried? I mean, it, it's so complicated to try to get these lenses to work. And if you go through... The studies are amazing. Some of the things that have been attempted in the materials and uh, the polymer chemistry is just awesome. I mean, we've tried surface treatments, uh, whether we're actively binding things to it or passively binding things to it. There's a lot of different packaging additives that have been done. It, there's just a lot to it. And, uh, you know, 
dailies really kind of began in about 96. And by 98, we started looking at, you know, hey, maybe this polyvinyl alcohol, this PVA, uh, might be something that we want to help uh, accentuate to increase this comfort even more. And that's where the the dailies Aqua Comfort and Aqua Comfort Plus kind of began to really flourish because uh, the material was doing well. But as, the question was, how could we get it from doing pretty well to doing fantastically well? And it's taken a lot uh, to make it work, uh, to get what patients demand. That's what we were talking about before. You know, the patient's not okay anymore with eight hours of wear time. They want 16 hours of wear, and they don't want it to dry out, and it's got to feel great. And by the way, it needs to be free and available in their power and always present. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but, I mean, so that's all they demand. But the Dale's Hot Comfort, the, what's called light stream technology, uh, which was taken from high-quality uh, lithography, is using UV to polymerize that PVA. So that's fundamentally how the, the lens is made. It's essentially, it's exposed to light and it solidifies. The good thing about that is that there's not all these other byproducts. So if you're, if you're casting a lens and you're making it and, and while it's curing, there's all these other toxins and byproducts that have to be pulled back out. Well, if you're putting a comfort agent in and then you have to purge all these toxins out, you just pulled out your, your comfort agent. So what that technology allows is for the comfort agents to be inside the lens prior to curing, and then the UV hits and, and sets the lens, and we still have our, our wetting agents in size to make things work. And so the plus with the Dale Comfort Plus is where we learned kind of a three-step process that helped make that lens work uh, in a very specific way. There's a blend of the PVAs that are at work here. So there's bound PVA, what's actually making the lens up, and then there's unbound. And the neat thing about PVA and the reason it makes things more comfortable is that the polyvinyl alcohol mimics mucin. So if we're talking about that pre-lens tear film or the mini tear film, what do we want at the base? Well, we can't have the lipid at the base. That's what's causing our trouble. Mucin at the base would be the ideal thing. So there we go. We've got it sitting on the surface of the lens where we want it to be. But we have some other things that we need to do. I mean, we're inserting a, a foreign body, right? So it's got to be comfortable. And uh, hydroxypropyl methylcellulose, which is in a lot of our, our tiers, it's in the packaging solution. And it's a pretty small molecule, so it disperses fairly quickly. But that's what gets insertion comfort. So when the patient puts the lens in, while most of us are not really worried about what that insertion comfort is from a long-term success predictor for our patients, I mean, you can't put a lens in and know how it's going to act 16 hours later. But it is like a first impression for the patient. They're making their marketing decision then. So it's got to feel good right off the bat. And that lasts 20 or 30 minutes. And then the next thing there, it's PEG 400, uh, which is a little bit bigger molecule. Uh, and it's embedded. It kind of uh, mingles in with the PVA and the lens matrix. And it's in the packaging solution. And it's going to help disperse back out in the next two to four hours. So we got them started with HPMC. The, the PEG 400 is going to kind of disperse out over the next two to four hours and get them, get them going through the day. But then that's where the PVA comes in and kind of takes over that all day, end of the day, is where the polyvinyl alcohol that's unbound can actually come back out of the lens there. And it's a little bit more uh, friction activated, so the blink literally helps the PVA work. And, and it, it'll release the unbound PVA for about 24 hours, and then after that, that lens is ready to go into the garbage. And, and that system, I mean, the three steps in the manufacturing process, it's unbelievably complicated what it takes to make one of those lenses. And I think it also explains a little bit why it takes so long to bring one of these to market. I mean, you're talking about uh, 15 years uh, of, of research here, a couple hundred people working on it to be able to make this work. Right. 
Right. Is there one lens t- technology that, that uh, has a better result than any other technology? Well, when, when lens wedding is what I meant to say, wedding technology. Yeah, and it's, I think the key, uh, one lens is, is tough to come by, but one lens technology, meaning a set of these factors, there is definitely some things that show up a little bit better. Uh, and there's a, a study that was published by James Wolfson that is really interesting here that looked at uh, non-invasive t so looking at that pre-lens tear film, but looking at it in a way uh, using a modified topographer to measure breakup times objectively. And looking at that pre-lens non-invasive T-bud, the daily aqua comfort plus did significantly better, statistically significantly better than the other lenses that were on the market. And so while it's not one easy switch to throw, it takes multiple switches to get that lens to be able to do what it does. It is very impressive and, and holds out in, in literature. Right. And, and, you know, Chris, I'd like to make a, a personal observation. You can tell me if this sort of jibes with your experience with, with the AquaComfort Plus in particular. You can wear the lens for a, a pretty long time, you know, 16 or 18 hours or a full work day, and it'll remain very comfortable. But if you really try to push it further, you know, you, you take it out to a day, um, the lens will get less comfortable. And I almost wonder if, if that's not sort of a built-in compliance mechanism that you can use uh, to your advantage. It is great. In fact, actually, it's one of the things that I uh, rely on for certain patients uh, that have a tendency of maybe pushing a lens a little further than it needs to go. Or uh, we'll tell them, it's like, look, it's like driving on a spare tire 100 miles an hour and doing it for, you know, a couple thousand miles. Just because you didn't have a blowout doesn't mean it was a good idea. Well, the concept of forced compliance is not necessarily uh, a bad thing within those patients, particularly younger patients who may, even though they're very cool, hip eye doctor. And by using the word hip, I think I immediately mean that I am not this person. <laughs> uh, relates to them and their parents are telling them, hey, this is not what you need to do. It, it kind of puts a little bit of a barrier there to them where they're going, you know what, this is starting to feel bad. And especially, you know, Americans don't like throwing stuff away. We, we want to try to reuse it. If it'll go one day, it'll go two. If it'll go two, it'll go seven. Now we've got something happening that we don't want to have happen or push that lens far beyond what it's capable of doing. Right. And, and that, I like that. I like that little backstop, for lack of a better way of putting it. One, one final question we have. Uh, so we can kind of pull all the, these loose ends together. So clinically, you have a patient coming in and complains of dry eyes at the end of the day. What are the clinical steps you propose to resolve that problem? What do you do with them? That is not easy. It's one of the things where you have to look at the overall system. And same way you were talking about the technology in a lens. So we have to kind of look at the system that's at work when the patient complains of dry eyes. And I think the one thing that I would say is the wrong answer is when we hand them an artificial tear or, or a rewetting drop and say, use this at the end of the day. Because our studies show that, that just it makes them feel better for a couple of seconds. It basically keeps them busy. And it's insulting to them, but the other problem is, is that it's where a dropout comes from, and we've got to keep our patients comfortable or they're going to quit wearing contacts. Our, our dropout is greater than 15% right now, somewhere in the 17 to 18% range, and it would be a complete game changer to change our contact lens dropout rate to sub 10%. Not, I mean, I'm still, we're still going to let just about 1 in 10 drop out, but if we just got it there, it would be amazing. And I think we can do that simply by engaging as eye care providers and looking at the system. Look at that eye. Why is it dry? Is it lipid? Is it secretion? What else do we have going on? Is there, you know, 
allergy going on? Do we have other anterior segment issues going on? What meds are they taking? What meds are they taking that they're not telling you about? What are they using to remove their makeup? The entire eye. Then we have to look at the contact lens. Is this lens the best lens for that eye? And anything that we're choosing every single time, I think you're going to have to would agree, is it's the wrong answer. No, no one lens, no one drop, no one anything is going to be perfect for everybody across the board. Also, I do think that a big issue here is solutions. And we haven't talked a lot about solutions because our conversation is primarily in dailies. But we have solution non-compliance in there, too. If the patient changes their solution to something different, or is using something that's creating possibly some of their issue, you know, are they mad at themselves for changing the solution or are they mad at us for our lens that isn't working the way that we told them it was going to be? Well, it, it may not be our fault, but it is our problem. So we have to figure out what else is going there. And once we treat that dry eye syndrome, that, that ocular surface disease, make sure that the lens is the, is the right match for this patient and make sure that it's cared for properly, whether that's with a multipurpose disinfectant solution or peroxide system or whether we're going to use dailies to bypass that aspect of the issue and simplify the system, particularly for allergy patients. So dailies can be a fantastic thing to let them bypass a lot of their surface disease and then let them experience that. It takes all of the steps, kind of a holistic interior segment approach to be able to do it. And in the same way that these lenses are very, very difficult to bring to market and very complex systems, the management of these patients, as much as we could about tears being a, you know, a simple and kind of a boring topic, it, it is so complicated to be able to solve these patients. And, but if we'll take just that little extra bit of effort, it's also so much more rewarding. Absolutely. So, well, Chris, it it, uh, it looks like our time is just about up. Do you have any sort of parting words for us? Uh, you know, anything else to say to the ODYR audience? I know the conversation, by the way, will continue online, so we'll keep it up. But, you know, but before that, do you have anything else that you'd like to add? No, fantastic. First of all, thanks again for, for having me. And I think one thing to look at, just if we look at our current makeup in the United States, we're just we're not using a lot of dailies. We're we're under twenty percent. You know, Japan's pushing sixty, UK's at about a third. And I think if you look at that and we look at our dropout rates, that just tells us that's that's our opportunity. We can take better care of our patients and help ourselves in the long run because it's it's good marketing for our practices. And it just makes it such a great growth opportunity for us as a profession. Well, that was great. Chris, thanks so much for making tears an interesting subject. I stayed awake the whole almost hour. So it's... <laughs> almost awake or almost an hour? No, uh, almost an hour. You know, it's, it's actually very unusual for Paul to stay awake for, through anything. So congratulations. Yeah, this is uh, great. <laughs> I really enjoyed well, it. Well, Chris, thanks so much. And I, and I guess we'll talk uh, online. Thank you.